You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. This week's Law and Order Marathon winner is Beth Netling of Alameda, California. Beth will get a marathon decal showing that she watched 26.2 hours of her favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at lawandorderpodcast.com. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Lonnie Diane Rich, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it, Law and Order, Law and Order, Law and Order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedurals, baby. Law and Order, Law and Order, Law and Order, Law and Order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. And today we're looking at The Mothership, Season 11, Episode 11, Sunday in the Park with Jorge. Downtown just finds it a bit hard to fathom why your guys are so focused on the victim's husband. Chief, we still have a lot of work to do. Do us all a favor. Find out it was one of the punks from the parade. Joining me to do that is true crime author and the host of Crime Writers On, HGTV and Me, and Slate's mom and dad are fighting somebody I used to know as Rebecca Lavoie. <laughs> Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Kevin. It's wonderful to be down here in the basement with you. In rejoining the panel is our special guest, the host of even more podcasts than Rebecca. From Chipperish Media, our own repeat offender, Lonnie Diane Rich. Hello, Lonnie. Hey, guys. It's great to be back. I love it. I don't know if I should have lawyered up first, but uh, I'm here. We're talking. <laughs> <laughs> And, and we're going to try to get through this episode without offending Vincent D'Onofrio. We'll try. Like in the yeah. like the last time, which was too bad. I mean, I actually think I, I take a lot of the responsibility. I think I was a little harsh. Was that Lonnie or was that Sarah also? Um, and Sarah and I also did a good job offending him too. Oh uh, yeah, wonderful no. Sarah debunting. No, yeah, poor but, Vincent. Hey, the, the take he can take it. The take <laughs> the takeaway for me and Lonnie, you do a lot of podcasts that revolve around looking at TV. And, uh-huh. and actually, I actually the lesson that I, I took away with is that, you know, sometimes there are things in it that should be crazy, but I think you should it, it, embrace the fun of it yes. mm-hmm. as opposed to, like, really shitting on the things that aren't great. I mean, you can embrace the fun side of that and not just take down people. I like to think that most multimillionaire actors who've been in things like comedies and dramas could take it. Vincent is a little thin-skinned. I love the guy. He's a little bit thin-skinned. His fans came after me, and I was like, what did I even say? And I listened to it, and I was like, I wasn't that mean. Like, I didn't say anything. <laughs> Rebecca was the one who said he ran like a girl. But here's the thing. <laughs> I think that because we, we come from a similar place. We both come from New York. You know, We have a similar voice. Like I think that they thought that I said he ran like a girl because people were yelling at me, and I was like, I didn't say that. And by so, the way, there's nothing wrong with running like a girl. I mean, no. that should not be an insult. That's a no. sexist insult to make anyway, so... I'm more mad at that it, than I am. And you at, made it. But it was funny. Because here's the thing. Like, when you are, I mean, I spend a lot of time, I do a lot of appreciation and criticism and stuff like that. And so when you're doing criticism, especially narrative criticism, I come at it from the perspective of a writer, then you have to look at the stuff that's not so good. But sometimes something is really funny and it's really hard not to like take note of it. And by the way, I would really like to say thank you so much, first of all, for the opportunity to get all of Vincent D'Onofrio's fans pissed off at me because that is a great story. <laughs> <laughs> all the time, and I'm genuinely thankful for that. But also that you chose me for the episode of Law and Order that is so racist 
they won't put it on television anymore. That's right. Yeah, yeah, this is a big episode. Yeah. Now, Lonnie, you do a lot of, like I said, a lot of TV-related podcasts, like Jed Bartlett is my president, mm-hmm. Sex and Whiskey. You also do How Story Works, but mm-hmm. tell me about Big Strong Yes. Oh, Big Strong so Yes is the one thing that I do that isn't actually um, narrative criticism. It's a, a podcast that my friend, Dr. Kelly Jones, she is a, a PhD in um, learning and educational systems. She's amazing and incredibly smart. And I love podcasting with people who are smarter than me. So thank you again for that, too, because this is a good opportunity for me to do that. But um, but she and I are reading, um, we're reading Brene Brown's Rising Strong, um, Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic. And now we're in Shonda Rhimes' Year of Yes. And so we're going through these books and kind of applying them to our lives and having deep discussions. And it's this whole very personal, very vulnerable thing. Um, but it's been it's been a really fun experience to, to do that kind of work. And we're having a good time with it. It's so good. It really is good. And I think it's like, um, you know, I'm not a huge fan of I don't want to like be mean, but I think a lot of self-help stuff is self-indulgent and not actually helpful. Mm -hmm. And your show is just, I think, so resonant and so sweet and you bring so much of yourself to it. And I would just say it's really inspiring and I've really enjoyed listening to it. So good work. Thank you so much. Good work. Thank you. Yeah, no, I know what you mean about self-help and it it can be a little bit douchey. This isn't douchey at all. No, thank you. I'm so glad I've made the not douchey mark. That is like, I, I always set a low bar for myself and it's just like not douchey. And like I step over that. It's awesome. Now, Lonnie, the last time we had you on, mm-hmm. we asked your favorite detective team. Mm-hmm. Favorite law and order detective team. And you confess that you didn't know a lot of the law and order characters and the detective teams. So we quizzed you then on whether these characters were from the Law & Order universe or not. Yes. And we're going to do that again. Are you ready to play? <laughs> I am ready. <laughs> okay. Drop so, the game show music. Okay. So you just say uh, yes or no on whether or not this is somebody from one of the Law & Order shows. Okay? okay? Ready? Okay. Detective Lupo. Uh, yeah? Yes. <laughs> okay. Otherwise known as Elton. Uh-huh. <laughs> Detective Tutuola. I No. <laughs> Yeah, that's yes, that's iced tea. That's iced tea? I don't even know yeah. iced tea. Wow, no, I really yeah. am ignorant. Uh, how about uh, S- Sergeant Friday? Sergeant Friday? No, that's Dragnet. Yes, good good for you. <laughs> um, Captain Ferrillo. Mm, uh, yes. No, that's no. Hill Street Blues, right? Yeah, that was Daniel J. Tavanti <laughs> and Hill Street Blues. I don't know, you guys, but I'm putting you on my show. We're going to do Still Pretty, and I'm going to quiz you about Buffy. All right, go ahead. Ooh. All right. <laughs> Detective Cassidy. Yes. Yes, good for you. Detective Pembleton. No. No, that was Andre Brower on Homicide. Mm. Uh-huh. Detective Profaci. 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 That sounds like some kind of weird Italian ham. I would say no. <laughs> no. It is. It is a real guy, and it's also a weird Italian ham. It is. <laughs> Not really, but in the show, he is kind of a weird Italian ham. <laughs> See, now they're going to come after you, Rebecca. Have you learned nothing from Vincent D'Onofrio? Yeah. That's all right. I'm Italian. <laughs> He's the guy who just passes expository paper right. to the lieutenant. That's right. Uh, Detective Simone. Uh, yes. No. no. That was Jimmy Smith from NYPD Blue. <laughs> no, wait. Jimmy Smith was Santos on the West Wing. Now I'm confused. He was yeah. that too. Yeah, he was that too. See, that's why I threw you off. How about Officer Winslow? No. No, you're right. He's not from Law & Order. That's Reginald Van Johnson from Family Matters. <laughs> And uh, lastly, Detective Gorin. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah, that's Vincent D'Onofrio. That's Vincent D'Onofrio. <laughs> I will never forget that. I've been emotionally traumatized by that experience. <laughs> Now let's take a look at the first half of this episode. Do we have to? Law and Order Season 11, (laughs) Episode 11, Sunday in the Park with Jorge. Ay, caramba! A mob of guys celebrating the Puerto Rican Day Parade go mucho loco, throwing water on women and ripping off their clothes. Meantime, in another part of Central Park, a couple who thinks banging in a rented rowboat sounds hot are surprised to find a body floating in the water, her head all bashed in. I don't know if they're responsible for this here, but I had a couple of knuckleheads from the parade try to mess with my rowboats. Can you describe them? Puerto Rican. Tall, short, fat, thin. I couldn't tell you. Uh, did you get a look at the dead woman? Yeah, right. Was she with anybody when she rented the boat? All by herself. Uh, she had a pair of shoulders on her big enough for a linebacker. Thanks for the tip. While the chief is taking heat for the slow police response to the parade assaults, the squad room is filled with arrested rioters, and Briscoe and Green are hoping one of them saw the murder. The victim, Susan Cap, is the wife of a young tech billionaire. Ethan says their relationship was good, but a lady can't start taking all of her belongings without the doorman noticing. <laughs> Susan might have wanted a divorce because Ethan was uploading on a backup server, if you know what I mean. Oh, God. You mean he had a girlfriend? Yeah. <laughs> no, he he has a boyfriend. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was making an email blast uh, all over her chest. But breaking up the marriage, breaking up the marriage would mean breaking up the lucrative company. Hmm. Also in line to lose his shirt is Ethan's partner Seth. His limo driver says he dropped him at the rowboat rental before the parade. Seth admits to meeting Susan there to talk her out of the divorce. When the rioters came, he says he ran for help and she rode away from shore. Though no one saw Seth attack Susan, it's enough to make an arrest. Okay, now first and foremost, why is this episode important? This episode was banned by NBC, and we'll get into the reasons later in this podcast. But this is not the first Law & Order episode to sort of get the death sentence from NBC, which is, you know, obviously different from Dick Wolf Productions. Right. So there is an episode of Criminal Intent, Season 8, Episode 8. It's called The Glory That Was. Mm Mm-hmm. And it is uh, not available in reruns. It's hmm. also not available on the DVD set. Wow. And I was just checking the the, uh, the listings. And, like, you know how several of these networks now, they just do, like, the series in sequential order. Right. Yeah, it went, I, I noticed it went uh, season eight, episode uh, six, seven, nine. So this is like that uh, Tom Cruise um, South Park episode or, like, that weird Peacock's incest episode of The X-Files. Yeah. Just never showed yes. again. Yes. Never showed Home. again. They never yeah. saw that again. But it's on the DVDs. Yeah, correct, correct. Now, but this one is about a murder and bribery case uh, involving the bid to get the Olympics. The, the criminal intent one. The was. criminal intent one was, yeah. and as you may recall, there was a real life extortion bribery scheme for the Salt Lake City Olympics, and yes. NBC is the network of the Olympics. Oh, and of course there is the F- the SVU episode that we will probably never see, which is the Donald Trump one right. from last year. Right. All right, so let's actually get to this story. It has kind of a a silly opening. Uh, We have, like, all these, you know, weird, violent rioting scenes. Mm. And then we cut to a couple in a rowboat who are going to have sex in the rowboat. Right. Rebecca, was this sexy? No. (laughs) (laughs) Um. I feel very exposed here, Ira. Privacy in public spaces, Paige. That's what New York's all about. Let me just... Get a hotel. Let's add rowboat in Central Park to our lifelists of sexual loci. 
<laughs> no, uh, A, the couple, I mean, we're going to talk about the horrible depiction in the rioting scenes, I'm sure, in a moment, right? Yeah, so yeah, let's yeah. just talk about the least sexy affair couple in uh-huh. the history of television. Yeah. I mean, think when the guy's name is Ira. They don't. It just not. It just doesn't have the same ring. Well, as, they don't look like they belong together, right? Yeah. I. It looks like he is like one of her son's friends or something. <laughs> it was very difficult oh. to figure out like where the heat in this alleged affair was coming from, and all she was doing was complaining, which, as we know, is the sexiest kind of foreplay. <laughs> and by the way, you like legit can't have sex on a rowboat. Like you can't even bring a dog onto a rowboat because every time it moves, you almost capsize. So you're saying they can't do doggy stuff. Exactly, or any kind okay. of style. Well, I don't think that's what he was looking for. There's one thing she could do in that rowboat that I think was what he was going for. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's true. That's true. But still, if the boat is a rockin', don't come and knock it. Right, right. <laughs> and I also really like this, too, is that they're in the rowboat, right? And you know, like, after having seen how everything lays out, that the dead body is literally right there. Like, they ha- they're they not actively moving fast in the rowboat. Right. All of a sudden, she looks over. So she has that, that really rare condition that we see a lot, this televisual peripheral vision blindness, right? Where the thing is right there, but until it's in the shot, no one can see it. So all of a sudden she's like, oh my God. I was like, oh, please. That baby, that that (laughs) woman was there the whole time. (laughs) Now, Lenny apologizes to one of the female victims saying, hey, if we'd known these guys were going to go all gang rapey, we would have had more police in the park. (sighs) Can't they basically say this, Lonnie, with every crime that's committed? Yeah, right. If we'd known that bank was going to be robbed. Can't you just tell us ahead of time? Give us a schedule of all of your criminal activities and we'll be there. This whole thing, I mean, it made me so uncomfortable. (laughs) The opening scene, the way it was done. Okay, talk about that. All right. Basically. You got to remember, though, a lot of people have not seen this episode. Okay, so the cold open of the show is a Puerto Rican Day Parade. That's the conceit. And, like, there are a lot of people holding Puerto Rican flags. And it basically turns into what looks like a natural, a, a National Geographic animal uh, attacking gazelle situation. And these human beings are depicted like animals. They basically are. They have everything that's, like, this, this tie between, like, Puerto Ricans and this, like, animal attack. I mean, there's basically like maracas playing in the background mm-hmm. and you hear all these guys literally going like, Liba! or whatever <laughs> they're doing and it's like... We had everything but Speedy Gonzalez, you know, in the background yes, on this. it was yeah. awful. And there are women getting their shirts pulled right, off. We, there's a woman getting her bra We start by off. seeing a bunch of guys like knock over a cart with a bunch of water. Right. They're throwing the water on women. They're pulling their tops off. Right. Basically what SVU has done in a million episodes to frat boys, mm-hmm. uh, Law and Order does to the entire Puerto Rican community in this episode yes. opener of Law and Order. It is so uncomfortable. But like I caught a ton of like subtextual, you know, gay relationships. Briscoe and Green, totally a thing, you know. <laughs> Seth and Ethan, absolutely, yep. you know. Um, totally. Yep. Yeah, like there's all this stuff happening that I was like, but all the gay stuff is like under the, and nobody's making gay comments. So at least there's that because God knows the gay panic from that time era is is ubiquitous. If you've ever seen an episode of Friends, you know what I'm talking about. But, right, um, exactly. But, you know, so I'm loving all these, like I'm cheering for all these like homosexuals. I was waiting for Diane Weist and Esapartha Murkison to be coming out of the bathroom together. Like I was like, yes, <laughs> oh. get it, girls, you know. Uh, we didn't have any of that. But I mean, all of the stuff in here, I was like, OK, I'm cheering for these, you know, these like subtextual gay relationships that I'm seeing all over the place. We're not acknowledging it. We're not looking it in the face, but it's all there. The subtextual gay relationships you saw, I didn't see them, but good for you. For oh, I have a screenshot. I'll yeah. send it to you. There's a screenshot. <laughs> except, except for Ethan and his friend. Except for Ethan and his friend. I'll give you that one. Oh, no. 
<laughs> you know, you're, you know, this. You're right. This Puerto Rican Day parade, um, you know, shouldn't have uh, devolved into a riot. And I can just say, as an Irishman, the St. Patrick's Day parade doesn't do that because we are too busy vomiting and urinating, <laughs> urinating in the street to do that. <laughs> Congratulations! I'm sure your mom is very proud. Yeah. Hey, let's hear it for the doorman. Oh, oh my Kevin, God. love the doorman. Love him and his Dick Tracy notebook. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because, like, in almost uh, well, I don't know, like one thousand episodes of Law and Order, you talk to somebody and they're like, eh, I don't know, I don't want to talk to you. I know there's one thing, you know, he's driving a blue car, and here's the guy who's like. I I got everything. One PP must be, be a, up in arms. He I want to be a cop. <laughs> he says one PP must be up in arms. Like he it's a doorman and he's talking like he's one of the cops and they're like, oh, were you on the job? He's like, no. I just watch a lot of long. <laughs> I just watch a lot of the show. <laughs> I loved that guy. Loved him. Yeah, he was fantastic. I mean, we've all known people who have like missed their calling in life, you know, but they have a passion for the job. And I think that you know we have this guy. Like everybody else is all like, I'm not talking to you, you pig, you know. But he's all into it. He's right there for it and I thought that was really good I loved I love the enthusiasm enthusiasm always gets a great deal of affection for me I think Lenny Briscoe's interview of doorman Kevin is my favorite scene in this whole episode <laughs> when uh Kevin is asking Are you maybe liking him for the homicide gee Kevin I don't know so far his alibi holds up why you think we should like him ordinarily you gotta always like the husband but this one might be a little too much of a wet noodle to pull it off gee I don't know Kevin <laughs> what do you think <laughs> <laughs> All right, now we have in the first half a Hey, It's That Guy. Mm-hmm. Hey, it's that guy. Who can give me the name of the actor who plays the police chief? Oh, that's Dan Loria from Wonder Years. Yes, oh, yes. Dan Loria. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. little Kevin's dad. Exactly. Now, well, given that we had some members of the force conspicuously non-proactive while all this was going on, We'd be well advised to pursue this investigation aggressively. Exactly five episodes before this episode, uh, he was the same uh, the same police officer. He was a captain. Oh, oh he had and a And in five episodes, he became chief. So good, good for, for him. Good for him. Good for, for you. Good for you, Kevin's yeah. dad. <laughs> yeah. But Dan has made five appearances among the uh, the three major shows. I really liked him on Wonder Years, but he was pretty gruff, right? I mean, he was... Uh, he was a 50s dad, a 60s dad. I mean, he was just like absent, you know, benign neglect mm-hmm. dad. Always at work, always gruff. Like, that was his role. And he was really sweet at it. Scotch in the top drawer of the desk. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> just the, the one episode that, that sticks out in my mind is the one where Kevin goes to work with him. Mm-hmm. And he see, you know, and he knows his dad is somebody who's like puts down uh, the other members of the family. He when his he dad is a, being tough. Yeah. His dad mm-hmm. is tough. And then he sees his his boss Yell put his dad, dad down yeah, yeah. and he kind of sees where like he, he gets it and. Well, I guess it's why it's the Wonder Years. I learned it from watching you, Dad. I learned it from watching you. And you learned it from watching your boss. <laughs> <laughs> so are we going to talk about Ethan Cap or what? Sure. The pre-Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg? Yeah. yeah by- <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, this is a Hey, It's That Guy, too. Did you guys catch that? No. No, who's that guy? Dude, this is Skipper from Sex and the City, <gasps> Ben Weber. Oh, see, yeah. I would never have made that connection in a million zillionaires. I mean, this guy oh, was yeah. so unappealing on this, and I just never even, I wouldn't think about him being in the Sex and the City universe at all. We have doormen, we have limos. Finally, you get to the point where you don't even risk taking cabs, and then you find out you're not safe. 
Well, he was he was unappealing on sex. He was the guy uh, that nobody wanted to sleep with. Like uh, all these women were sleeping with everybody in the city. They're like, you, eh, not so much. Except Miranda <laughs> had a little thing. But, you know, I mean, but he was that guy in the early, early seasons of Sex in the City. And so it was funny because I was like, ooh, Skipper, hey, how you doing? <laughs> oh, so I, I never got around to watching uh, Sex in the City because I had a thing. You had a thing? Mm-hmm. What was that, Kevin? A penis. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, guys, what does it say about race relations in New York City when a rich guy says, hey, I saw a bunch of Puerto Ricans, so I ran away, and my lady friend got in a boat because she thought she'd be safe in knee-deep water? Yeah. I just can't. That whole scene where they go to Ethan's apartment, and Seth is there, and Seth's Seth's first thing that he talks about is, like, how you can't do anything in New York anymore because of all the minorities. Can't take a cab. Can't go outside. (laughs) can't eat a hot dog because you're just inundated with, I don't know, Hispanics or whatever he says. <laughs> oh Hispanic hot dogs? God. Like those, that whole, those two people. I mean, I think, I think that we're not supposed to think Ethan is like so bad, although there's so much about his character that makes no sense. Like, why does he have this beautiful girlfriend? Because like. Well, plus he, well, he's rich. So, I mean, I guess there's that. But I mean, on top of it, like he has almost no dialogue. He has no personality. He is a big wet lasagna noodle that this woman <laughs> married. Yeah. And the whole time I'm thinking, why didn't he get killed? In right. The robot, exactly. You know? He really, really felt a little bit prescient because he really did seem like a Zuckerberg type character, like yeah. the hoodie, mm-hmm. yeah. the whole like dowdy kind of thing. Was he supposed to be like Bill Gates? It was very hard to tell like what they were modeling. Yeah. I from. mean, just, the, well, you know, there was this whole dot com sort of Right. But, you know, yeah. you know, when you looked at the office, yeah, it was sort of this like open concept. You didn't see like guys like going up rock walls or playing ping pong. <laughs> but yeah, right. He's this, you know, billionaire and he's just hanging out in a he's T-shirt. Cool. They went yeah. to MIT. They're cool. Yeah, they're cool. <laughs> I, You know, I'm a technology person. Like, I love technology. And Seth has this like serious you know, turn of the century PDA. <laughs> I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh my God, it has a stylus. Yep. And like, I remember having one just like Palm it. Palm Trio. <laughs> oh, baby. Yep. That was high tech year back then. That was like, he had that. <laughs> and we look at it now and we think, oh my God, is that a child's toy? But at the time, <laughs> those things were like 800. I mean, that was serious technology. Yeah. He had something that you know walked around in his pocket and could tell him how to spell things. Like it was crazy, you know? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And if today it'd be like, well, let's just triangulate that for Sunday and see, oh yeah, he was at the boat ramp. <laughs> this would have taken 10 minutes. <laughs> Well, he has a note in it that says, I am totally going to kill Susie. You know, it's, it's technology they wouldn't be able to break in, right? Now, let's look at the second half of this episode. At trial, McCoy and Carmichael find a last-minute witness who says he can place Seth in the rowboat with Susan. Where in Central Park were you? The lake. What, if anything, did you see there? That gentleman seated right there. He jumped out of a rowboat and walked by me in a big rush. There were a lot of people in Central Park that day. How sure are you it was the defendant? There weren't any other people jumping out of rowboats and running. I saw his picture in the paper. There's no doubt in my mind. That's the same guy. Nothing further. But Briscoe hears the guy lie on the stand. He and Green dig deeper and learn it was actually young parade rioter Nestor Salazar who climbed in the boat and bashed Susan's head in. DA Nora Lewin is getting pressure from City Hall after the mayor assured the Latino community they weren't being targeted and had to walk it back after their latest arrest. And Nestor's attorney complains that this case is just about politics. The defense paints a sympathetic picture of Nestor, a shy follower 
who's not exactly one of the homeboys. On the stand, he says he wanted to impress the wild bunch by jumping on Susan's boat like a pirate, but she slapped him. Afraid of losing face in front of the guys, Nestor fought back, but didn't mean to deliver a fatal blow. In order to save his sinking case, McCoy calls the mob attack of groping and assaulting women in the park, quote, the suspension of civilization, Mm. at which time Harvey Weinstein turned off his TV and said, hmm, amateurs. (laughs) (laughs) Nestor is found guilty of second degree manslaughter. The prosecutors head home for the night to contemplate the cultural destruction they've caused the city. Hmm. Okay, so halfway through the murder trial of a billion dollar wife, McCoy just says, oopsie. Yeah, and and by the way, after I think one of the greatest interrogations I've ever seen on the show, like what got Seth to trial, that incredible scene with Green where he's basically doing the talking head style interrogation. How do you mean? You may ask yourself. Ask yourself. Are they asking me questions they already know the answer to? What do you mean? Ask yourself, is there proof that you saw Susan not a month ago or three weeks ago, but the very same day she was killed. I did not kill her. Hey man, ask yourself, did someone see me at the exact same spot where Susan was killed? Did someone see me? Now ask yourself, what would your answer be if they did? I thought that was really, really good as far as interrogations go. And I they seemed very confident when the douchey guy from the mayor's office came and should this be the trial? Like Diane Weist was like, yes, there should be dancing in this town. I mean, there should be a trial of this guy. We have everything we need. I don't know. I thought it just I thought the trial seemed like it was going to work out. And um, later we hear that he was apologized to apparently when he was let go. It was a sincere apology. (laughs) (laughs) We're really sorry as they dust off the shoulder on his uh, jacket. But here's the thing, though, like in what universe is Seth, right? This guy who's loaded, not lawyering up. I mean, I, I suspect that this guy brings a lawyer with him to the Chuck E. Cheese birthday party he's having for the estranged <laughs> daughter he sees exactly once a year. Like, this guy has a lawyer in that PDA. Like, he is going nowhere without a lawyer. And there's Green doing his great stuff. What if, you know? Yes. And it's it's this great scene. It's really, and I'm like, this guy's lawyer would be like, what if I sue you to nowhere, <laughs> you know? You will never work in this town again. Like, you know this guy's got to have a lawyer. So I just thought that that was hilarious. Like he he's totally absolutely going to lawyer up like before anything ever happens. So So this is our first podcast where we get to talk about Abby Carmichael. Mm-hmm. Um but it's too bad in this episode she's really not her feisty self. She's not I think it's cuz she's growing out her bangs and they're sort of just tucked <laughs> over her ear the whole episode. She doesn't have like her usual like, you know, fighting hair. What you didn't notice that, Kevin? It's not a deep detail that you noticed. No, it's not a detail <laughs> I noticed. She seems to apologize a lot in this episode, which is not like her. I'm a huge fan of Abby Carmichael even though I think the character is often written a little bit weird. Um, but yeah, she does do a lot of shady looks like uh, eye rolling, um, incredulity uh, when the douchebag from the mayor's office comes and basically lectures them about not turning this into a race thing. She's just sitting there like, you know, looking like, yeah, um, you know, I wouldn't have gone out with you in high school. Like she has that kind of thing going on a lot. Um, and I, I do like that about her. I like when she deploys that. But yeah, we, we didn't see her enough in trial. We certainly didn't see her enough, you know, fighting. At one point she throws herself under the bus saying it was her fault. You know, I should have followed up on that. You know, Abby, come on. It's not your fault. You're not no, the boss. She's trying to keep her distance. She knows what's going on in this episode. And she's like, I am not involved in this. I am not doing anything in this episode. Just keep me out of it. Because of the politics that are around this. And the politics are really kind of fuzzy and they keep they keep going back and forth. The cops in the beginning want this killer to be 
one of the Puerto Rican rioters. No, the, because it saves him. The leadership and the cops do, but the actual cops were right. Right. But that's right. The pressure don't. coming down right. is that they want it, want it to be one of the rioters. Right. And then later on, the mayor is hoping it's not one of the Puerto Rican rioters right. because of the uh, tenuous relationship, you know, with uh, the minority community. I mean, we have somebody from the mayor's office come, and even though it has like no power over the DA, mm. sort of give her a dressing down. This administration had the political high ground on this one, and your people just pissed it away. Tell the mayor I'd be happy to meet with anybody he thinks would be beneficial. It's not going to be that easy. These bridges we've tried to build with the minority communities are not too sturdy. So it's going to be damn near impossible to mend them now. He totally mansplained. Oh, yeah. The, it, and he had the weirdest accent. He didn't sound like, he sounded like he was like trying to do a New York accent. It was very strange. But also, Lonnie, it was kind of his affect where he was sort of reading these lines like um, like he's Cicero or something. <laughs> oh, was that, was that the Howard Cosell guy? Yes. Yes. Uh, exactly. I was like, that was one of my notes. I'm like, what is this? He's channeling Howard Cosell. I don't know if Howard Cosell was dead at that time, but he would have died just listening to that guy do a bad, bad Howard Cosell. Um, yeah, it was, I don't know what was going on with that. Like, he's like, I really, I have this one shot. I'm on law and order. Nobody's going to forget me, you know? And I think that's what Guess he's, what? We forgot you know. him. Yeah, well, right. you know, we, we only forgot him because then Kiki, a.k.a. Puerto Rican Eminem, shows up and steals the whole show. <laughs> I got a sick mother. I got asthma. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that guy, man. He was committed. He was in it. He was like, this is terrible, but I'm going to do it. You know? Yeah. I like yep. that. Yeah. Although the acting, come on. When they ask Kiki, <laughs> when they catch him in the lie on the witness stand and mm-hmm. they're like, uh, can you think of somebody else who was there who might have known something? He literally scratches his chin and goes, I, there is this one guy, right. which is like totally out of texture of all the Eminem-ing that we see going on in all the previous scenes. Right. He was told he was doing an episode of Seinfeld, I think. <laughs> <laughs> like He was like, I can be pretty convincing when I want to be. <laughs> I don't want to be right now. Yeah, I, I, I feel like our listeners might not appreciate the fact that I called him Puerto Rican Eminem, given that uh, they're not going to be able to see this episode. Right. But he literally had that like bleached Eminem all forward, like 2001 MTV Music Awards hair situation, uh-huh. a white T-shirt. Like, he was clearly styled after Eminem, It was a right? clear homage. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it was. Yeah. It, it, it was. In the second half, we have a Hey, It's That Girl. Hey, it's that girl. Can you give me the name of the actress who plays Nestor's sister, Dee Dee, that we saw on the stand? I can't, but I know I've I seen her it. in a million things. What do you oh, got, Lonnie? Lonnie, who is it? <laughs> that is Selena's Leva from Orange is the New Black. My brother respected women. He grew up in a house with strong women. He would not have gotten away for a second if he did anything but respect women. Yes, that's what she's from. Yeah, she was Gloria Mendoza, the queen of the cafeteria. That's right. Yep. But before that, through season seven, in seasons 15 through 17, she played Detective Rivera on Law and Order. She was a cop. Mm-hmm. She was a cop. She was the one who would hand Van Buren pieces of expository paper <laughs> in the squad room. <laughs> so she basically was the profaci of her day. Oh, profaci. Yeah, yes. she would just uh, come in. Say something, someone's on the phone, and then walk out. Come in, where's the stapler? Hand their stapler, walk out. That was her job, right? People wanted staplers? (laughs) It's old school police work, Kevin. It's shoe leather. Now, there is a scene with Susan's parents, and they're not happy with the testimony and the way the trial's going 
because of the, um, the, the testimony about the sympathetic defendant. Yeah. It's not an unusual tactic for a defendant to play to the sympathy of a jury. Especially with the testimony of a family member. And what about sympathy for our daughter? When do we get a chance to tell them who she was? The system doesn't work that way. Well, it damn well ought to. Lonnie, is it a fairness system or a justice system that we have? Oh, it's a justice system. <laughs> Which is not a fairness system. Which is not a fairness system. No, absolutely not. Was I the only one who thought they were setting up like a courtroom shooting situation? Like we've had in every other episode where that's happened. Like where like <laughs> someone is like, what about my daughter? And then next thing you know, they're just basically firing shots in the courtroom steps or on the courtroom itself, in the courtroom itself. Wow. I did. Is that, is that an aesthetic that Law & Order goes for a lot again? Oh, the least safe place in New York City in the Law and Order universe is on the courthouse on steps, the steps yeah. or like in a in the courtroom itself when someone angry is standing sitting behind you. Yeah, wow. yeah. Well, that happened one time at least, you know, and it really ruined Claire Kincaid's beautiful 1990s androgynous business suit. It but, did, yes. Uh, <laughs> there is a truth here that like the victims in real life, you know, seem to get short shrift when it comes to these kinds of trials because it is all about the constitutional rights of the accused. Yes. And victims and victims' families feel like they're left out. Yes. And in this case, the victim was literally left out because we never saw her. We never met her. And the only thing we kept hearing about her over and over and over again was that she had shoulders like a linebacker and that really she could pack a punch. I thought the big twist in this episode was going to have it turn out that like she had been a man at some point in her life. Right. Because Jesus, they already like uh, uh, tried two different people for the all, murder. But there were all of these references to her being like unattractive, to her being big. Like it was very strange. They didn't do anything to engender any kind of sympathy or love for this person. I mean, they basically except for getting her head bashed. And in. then when we went to meet her divorce lawyer. The divorce lawyer, you know, was like talking about how angry she was. I'm like. Are the parents just there as advocates to remind us that there's a victim in this case? That there's an actual human victim in this? Yeah, I, I couldn't figure out their purpose. Right. I thought that they were going for the like shoulders by a, like a linebacker thing because the only person they could get to do the dead body face down in the water was a man. <laughs> stunt man. The stunt man. Yeah, they need they, they didn't have a stunt man who had like a feminine, you know, physique. Mm. So they were like, well, we're going to have to acknowledge the fact that this woman is is larger because God forbid we should have any female on television who isn't a size zero. You know? Exactly. And well, I, I um, think it was an important plot point that they tried to set up because in the end, Nestor says that he he went on the boat and just splashed her, but she was big enough and strong enough mm-hmm. to fight back in a sense where he started to feel afraid. Mm. And if she were, you know, this dainty little thing, you wouldn't buy it. Oh, I would buy it. I've seen I've seen, oh, seen? five foot tall like black belts. Oh yeah, like I know some women who could take you down because they know what to do. All right, let's take a look at the real life story that inspired this episode. Uh. It's time for Rip from the Headlines. Think you know who did it? Think you know who did it? But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Rip from the headlines. This episode takes its inspiration from attacks on random women after New York's Puerto Rican Day Parade in June of 2000. It began when a group of 20 men in Central Park surrounded two teenagers, soaked their shirts with water pistols, then began to grope them. The men moved on and found a pair of French honeymooners. They ripped off the woman's clothes and fondled her. Her husband fought through the crowd and laid on top of her to shield her. 
The mob made its way to the street where they cornered a female rollerblader. They struggled for several minutes to pull off her shorts, but gave up and stole her backpack. The group then accosted three British tourists. The women scattered, but they grabbed one of them, tore off her clothes and sexually assaulted her. When they were done, a second group of men arrived to attack her. Eventually, 30 people were charged for the incident. The public was shocked by the violent spree which took place in broad daylight and lasted only 35 minutes. Police were roundly criticized for their slow response to the attacks. 11 cops were disciplined and the city paid $5,000 to settle lawsuits filed by victims. Okay, so we started by saying that this episode <laughs> is one that was banned by NBC. Right. And so why? Well, the network got a lot of criticism from the National Puerto Rican Commission for the show's portrayal of, of Puerto Ricans. Now, Dick Wolf was not pleased at all with NBC's decision to pull it from reruns. And as a matter of fact, it didn't appear in reruns on NBC or USA Hmm. until the franchise was moved over to TNT Hmm. in 2009. Okay. So you can see it now, but NBC just made this pledge that they would not uh, run it again. And you got to also remember, this is two years after the Seinfeld episode in which Kramer accidentally lit a Puerto Rican flag on fire at the parade and stomped it out, and that drew a lot of criticism. So this is, as opposed to being um, a controversial episode that was pulled from thin air, I mean, this was based on a real incident Mm. with a, a lot of fact, I mean, totally ripped from the headlines. Do activists have a leg to stand on when they say this was unfair treatment? Yes, they do. Because the incident that they are doing their story uh, based on, and yeah, it happened. It was, it was an incident that happened. But the conversation in this episode could have been so much more interesting and could have been deeper. And they had this ham-fisted attempt at politics in the episode. Well, the mayor wants this and the the chief of police wants this. And that's essentially what happened to the creators of this episode. They got stuck in the same kind of political mm-hmm. trap. Exactly. And you have to wonder if they wouldn't have gotten stuck in that trap if they had focused more on the... Um, you know, these were kids who'd been drinking and went nuts and committed crimes um, aspect of this and then talked about the racial tension and why it wasn't OK to vilify a community and made the episode about that. Mm-hmm. You have to think that the leaders in the Puerto Rican community would have been happier with that than an episode that continued to perpetuate this myth that like an entire community of people behave like animals when you put them together in a parade. I think that. When the identifying thing, the identifier that you use for a group of people is not here are a bunch of drunken assholes who assaulted women, but here are a bunch of Puerto Ricans who assaulted women, then what we're doing is we're associating the fact that they're Puerto Rican with the act itself, that Mm. that is the connector. That is the reason why, as opposed that they were, you know, drunken men who were behaving like animals, you know. Um, So when you make that association with the group that they are a part of, you're separating them out, you know, you're saying it's because they're Puerto Rican that they did these things. And if it was a bunch of white men who had done it, then we wouldn't even be talking about race. It would just be right. a bunch of men got drunk, right? But as soon as it is somebody from uh, like a, an underrepresented, underprivileged community, um, then we end up making it about the identifier first because one of the things that we want to do is separate them out from 
us. And by us, I mean white people, right? You Mm. know, make the white people feel safe because it's the Puerto Ricans doing this. And you can always tell when somebody's going to be bad because they're Puerto Rican, because they're gay, because they're whatever, right? Because they're frat boys, you know, Um, you make that association of what they are with what they did. And then you separate that out. And, um, and that's, that basically makes them representative of the community rather than just a bunch of people who made some really, really poor choices. Right. Now, don't kill me. Somebody has to play devil's advocate here Mm. and talk about the situation that the writers are in (laughs) and about whether the network made the right decision in banning this episode. Let's set aside for a second. Again, this is a, you know, rip from the it's it's so closely ripped from the headlines that they even use this, the actual date Mm -hmm. of this riot when they're talking about the, you know, in court, the fictional thing, June 11, 2000. Mm. But let's say that the next three episodes of Law and Order. Um, are not ripped from the headlines. These are ones that they, the writer's room makes up. And I tell you, one is about the mob, one is about terrorists, and one is about a crack dealer. Mm. Are we not going to make assumptions about who to cast oh, yeah. in each of those? And Law and Order is horrible at this. They are, this is but, like- but, but, but are they wrong? Yeah, it's wrong. Then how, okay, <laughs> okay. then how do you do, how do you do a cop show without- you know, you go a layer ignoring, deeper. Yeah. How do you no. do it? How do I you mean, do it? It's it's very difficult. Kevin, what is the greatest cop show in the last fifteen years? The Wire. Right. The Wire cast all African American actors playing based on real life African American drug dealers uh-huh. and like the whole system around them. Right. Uh-huh. The conversation in that show. What went deeper because it mm-hmm. went to the systems that created a situation. Okay, but that, that's the wire. This is law and order, right. which is a big deal. But there are, but but but, right. why, but you still have that responsibility. Yeah. But why isn't the Italian American community going to oh, NBC? And why? Okay, then why isn't NBC <laughs> saying none of these mob shows are going to be in reruns? Right. Or none of these shows that show young black men committing crimes that are considered controversial. Why are why are these getting put? Why is this particular one, which isn't really, you know, this isn't like the greatest crime episode that Law and Order has ever done. It just so closely mirrors what actually happened. Right. Well, I would say this. With a, with a fake homicide thrown I, in, which I, is their I formula. I can actually tell you what I think is yeah. at work here. So Law and Order has a lot of race problems, I think. In general, but I'd say you talk about the terrorist stuff. Their yeah. their portrayal of Middle Eastern people, of Muslim people, is terrible. It is not good on this show. This is a show, however, that is filmed in and produces in New York, right? right? Yeah. Look at the power structure in New York. Look at the groups that exist in New York. Look at the um, like the uh, sort of the there are there are a lot of Latino Americans in power in New York in elected positions, uh, running unions, like sort of part of the power structure of the production of this in a way that. Other minority groups who are portrayed poorly on Law and Order are not in power in the place where this is produced in the seat of power of this production. So you know what? They had a little bit more muscle to make a stink, and good for them. Well, Lonnie, are, are the writers in a, like a no-win situation when it comes to this? No, they're not in a no-win situation. Okay. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, you can absolutely make this work. Here's the thing: it's not that you cannot represent. 
you know, situations that have racist undertones. I mean, let's face it, we are in a society that has huge racist undertones. The problem is when you don't question them. The problem is when, you know, and the thing is, is that reality is no defense for fiction. I've been saying that for years and I'll say it forever, (laughs) right? Reality is no defense for fiction. Just because this is what really happened doesn't mean that you portray it exactly that way. You can have it at the Puerto Rican Day Parade. You can have it, you know, happening that these men happen to be Puerto Rican. But when you address it in your fiction, you need to address it. Like, you know, exactly what Rebecca was talking about with The Wire. When you talk about the deeper societal things that are going on underneath, then you're actually addressing the whole picture instead of just this, we're slapping this on to the fact they did this because they're Puerto Rican, not they did this and also happened to be Puerto Rican. And the thing is, is that you can have racist characters. You can have people saying terrible things. You can have people doing terrible things. This is what fiction is. It helps us deal with real life. But when textually you don't have um, a perspective and a tone that acknowledges what's going on here and all of the perspectives around it, then what you end up doing is creating another, you know, brick in the wall for racist caricature that actually does real damage to these communities because, and this is why I do the work that I do, and pardon me while I step up on my soapbox, <laughs> the stories we tell, I know, you, you knew this was a danger when you had me on here, um, the stories that we tell culturally are the stories that we believe. The stories that we tell ourselves are the things that we actually believe to be true. And it actually does. There's a certain amount of, of reality in our perception of reality that is malleable. And the stories that we tell culturally form that reality. And when in the stories that we tell, we do not acknowledge, you know, we, we dip into these really heavy, you know, issues of race and of murder and all of this kind of stuff and, and who people are. When we dip into that, we have a cultural responsibility to talk about it fully. And if you can't talk about it fully, then what you do is you take, you know, the riot and you take some of these elements out. You underplay them instead of heightening them up and and shining a big spotlight on them that you are not prepared to be responsible enough to address. Lonnie, I have one more question for you. Would you do it in a rowboat in Central Park <laughs> with a guy named Ira? Um, I think those days are probably behind me, but not with a guy named Ira. I think had you asked me that in like the 90s when I was in college, you might get a different answer. But right now, no, no. I'd do it in a rowboat with a guy named Ira Glass. Oh, that oh <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Intellectual is sexy. Yeah. Hey, that's going to do it for us. I want to thank our guest, Lonnie Diane Rich. Lonnie, where can our listeners get more of you? I am, and I don't mean in a rowboat. In a rowboat. <laughs> well, it depends. Um, no, uh, actually, if you go on Twitter, I'm at Lonnie Diane Rich. You can find me uh, at Chipperish Media, chipperish.com. And Rebecca Lavoy, the divorce will be on Thursday. <laughs> but until then, how can our listeners follow you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Reb Lavoy. And please check out my new podcast, HGTV and Me, especially this week because we're talking about that horrible Tark and Christina from Flipper Flop. It's pretty fun. And you can track me on Twitter. Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law and Order Pod or follow us on Instagram at These Are Their Stories Podcast. Our newsreader was Cy Freighter. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoy. Content assistance from Travis Roy. Lily Flynn handles promotions. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others discover this program just like you did. 
All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Act fair use exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. To get ad-free episodes of These Are Their Stories a week early and other exclusive content, sign up for Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com crime to start your free trial. If you want to know what episodes we're talking about in our upcoming shows, go to Law & Order Podcast. Com. Sign up for our newsletter for a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These Are Their Stories was recorded in the podcast Hall of Justice and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime Media.